Lenny Duncan is many things, a writer, speaker, an unlikely pastor, but one thing he is not is meek. Formerly incarcerated, formerly homeless, and formerly unchurched, Duncan is black, queer, and the pastor of Jehu's Table, a church in Brooklyn that is part of the whitest denomination in the United States, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. It's to the ELCA that he ostensibly addresses his new book, Dear Church, a love letter from a black preacher to the whitest denomination in the U.S., which unapologetically seeks to call out the white supremacist and capitalist core of mainline churches that need to be dismantled in order for the radically affirming message of Christ to flourish. Jonathan Williams and I talked to Lenny about the futility of trying to separate politics from Jesus, a man who's suffering under an authoritarian state Lenny equates the later fates of Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, and Michael Brown, amongst others. Outspoken and inspired, Lenny's hope ultimately and eternally rests in the promise of God's grace and the future of a revolutionary church. Listeners should know that Lenny Duncan is unapologetically passionate, and this interview features some instances of strong language. Well, we're talking to Lenny Duncan uh, in the book, uh, Dear Church, a love letter from a a black preacher to the whitest denomination in the U.S. Uh, Lenny, it's an amazing book. It's a heavy book. It's an important book. Um, so I just, I, I want to ask you first, how did the book, uh, come to be? And, and not just, obviously the ideas are, are from you and from their experience, but what was the impetus where you're finally just like, this is something I have to write down. This is something I have to share and get out to people. Yeah. So it's a, actually kind of a funny story. I was working on this memoir thing called trajectory of grace and, um, which, you know, like low key is still happening. And um, I wrote to my publisher and I went through the whole process. I turned in a couple chapters and they're like, um, that's not the book we want from you. The memoir market's really saturated right now. <laughs> and um, that's my white publisher voice. And, uh, and I was like, you know, I was like, I was pissed. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, I was like, you know, I was, I was like super hurt. And they were like, but we want you to write a book about where you see the church going in the 21st century. And I was like wait a minute. I was like, I'm young, I'm black and queer. I can't keep my mouth shut. And you want me to write a book at all my peers, you know, which are like, you know, in the evangelical Lutheran church in America, it's 13,000 peers. I'm like, you, you want me to write a book at them? Um, and they were like, yeah, yeah, that's what we want you to do. And I was like, you know, maybe in a couple months, I was just so hurt by the process. But about an hour later, I got super pissed off. And so they asked me to write a sample table of contents. I was like, oh, you want me to write a table of contents? Here's one for you. We're going to talk about nationalism. We're going to talk about how the church is queer. We're going to talk about how all of y'all are super racist AF. <laughs> I was like, oh, like, I was like, I was like, you want a book? I'll give you a book. And I sent it in. And a couple of days later, they greenlighted it. So, <laughs> so then I had to write this book. Um, and so part of it's based off a blog series I took down um, called Dear Church that I wrote a couple years ago. Uh, and then, like, when they gave me permission to say all the things I ever say to the church I love, I, like, really, like, I, I'm, I'm going to speak a little progressive Christian here. I leaned into it. And, um, right, that's, that's how progressives talk, right? So <laughs> That's exactly how we talk, yeah. Yeah. You identified as one ill, so I so I leaned into it, and um, and uh, you know like um, that's sort of how the book came about. And then as I started talking about these things, you know, like I really want to see the church move forward. I really think that the ELCA's position in a very unique position in American Christianity, 
um, right now in this time and in this place. And um, I, I really saw the book as, as a way of, of, of trying to mobilize a, a, a unique group of people. But of course, it has applications to every other Christian denomination, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do want to talk specifically about the ELCA, because I mean, considering the, the subtitle of the book, um, A Love Letter from a Black Preacher to the Whitest Denomination in America, um, you do talk in the book about how you fell in love uh, with the ELCA. And I, I want to hear a little bit more about uh, what it was about it that that caused you to fall in love. Because, I mean, the, the first thing I think of when I hear Lutheran is I had a high school best friend. He was a Lutheran, and his experience as a Lutheran caused him to convert to Catholicism. So he ended up going in the opposite direction that you did, kind of becoming more conservative versus you who, who went to the, the progressive route. So for me, I was part of a vineyard church plant team. Shout out to the vineyard. And, <laughs> and, um, and uh, they were really good to me. I mean, they were the first church that recognized my gifts in ministry. Um, they immediately put me on a church plant team. And like, I was like with these two white kids from Missouri, like in a like person of color neighborhood that was gentrifying. And they were literally only reaching out to hipsters. And I was like, yo, what the f- is going on? Like, you got to be kidding me. And um, I started asking real troublesome questions like, you know, like, hey, don't you think like the uh, don't you think like the Ethiopian eunuch is probably queer? I mean, we know he's black, but like, you know, we just think he's queer, too. And and uh, <laughs> and sort of being a real thorn in their side. <laughs> right around that same time, I got asked to preach at a ELCA church. Um, I'm in long term recovery. So they invited me to preach about the 12 steps and specifically step nine. And I went there, you know, and the, and the pastor said, and I talk about it in the book, he said, Jesus made no restrictions at this table and neither do we. And I had never had anyone allow me to approach, particularly people who kept the sacraments in high regard, right? You know, not like at forefront, right? But like where the sacraments are. That was my first shot, Jonathan. <laughs> sacraments are like in high regard, right? Where like it's a sacramental liturgical theology. But in general, I've never been allowed to approach the table of grace without having to walk through a theological minefield. No friendly chat with the pastor. You know what I mean? Like, oh, well, you can become a member once you join a small group and we make sure that, like, you're thoroughly brainwashed. And, you know, and can you bring your bills and your checking account so we can make sure you're giving, like, you know, 10%? Like, you know, like, I had, I'd experienced all that stuff. But here was this pastor declaring, like, furious, like, you know, very furiously, too. Like, like this is Jesus' table. We make no restrictions because he made no restrictions. And like, it was the first time I felt like I had approached the table of grace and felt the nearness of God in the elements um, where I wasn't dragging everything I'd ever done. Was, would you say that was the moment where, where you, you sort of created a fidelity to the LCA? Was it yeah, that moment? Absolutely. That was the moment for me. And, and the pastor was smart, right? So like he did a few polity things like in our polity, if you give one penny a year or take communion like once a year, you're a member. So like he made me sign the communion book that day. And usually I threw 10% of whatever I made that week in whatever basket. I never signed because I don't want you emailing me your stupid ideas about my life. And, you know, I was very much a free range Christian. And, and uh, you know, so like he like made me fill out the form that I had given, right? Which technically made me a member. 
And then he spent a year meeting me every couple of weeks for lunch. And, you know, I was going to like Lancaster Bible College at the time and like doing all these very anti-progressive kind of moves. But he poured, he poured into me and he treated me like a peer and an equal the entire time. He never once, you know, he kept proper pastoral distance. But like I told him I felt like I had to call the ministry and like he honored that from day one, you know, and um, and and fed into me, too. So, I mean, yes, that's the moment where I fell in love with, with it. But, you know, love takes work, right? And so that pastor put the work in, too. I mean, on that, on that, I mean, the love that you have for the ELCA takes work as well. And you talk about it as being, obviously, the whitest denomination in America. Um, you talk about that being a theological problem, especially a theological problem within the denomination. I think right now, most of the time, it gets talked about as a social issue. So talk a little bit about why, that, why that's a theological issue. Well, so for me as a Christian, like we, I mean, I think most Christians in America are just really polite agnostics at this point. And, you know, like, like I want to play well together. Like, but like, you know, like if you walk up to a Christian, be like, yo, demons are real. They'd be like, all right, man. Like they wouldn't like, they wouldn't like buy into that. If you're like, yo, healing's real. Like transformation's real. Like, I've experienced the living Christ. I've touched the living Christ. They would be freaked out by that, right? And so I think the only thing that we can all agree on um, as our inheritance is our story. So we've inherited the story of Jesus, right? And so the way we tell the story has theological implications. So if I'm in a church that only has white representations of Jesus— you know, I talk about this in the book, being a little black boy sitting there and only ever seeing Jesus. You know, my mom was white, right? So Jesus looked like all the cousins who called me nigger. You know what I'm saying? So like if they weren't for me and they look like Jesus and Jesus can't be for me, right? Or like, you know, like the way the liturgy is laid out in our tradition, right? Easter, the resurrection and baptism, those are all white. Those are all, we always use white symbols for that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I mean, I don't know about, you know, I know for me as a black man in this country, there is a certain connotation about people who wear white robes, mm. right? So it's a bunch of white people in white robes, right? Um, and also the way we describe Jesus. You know, I describe Jesus as a person of color who was publicly lynched by law enforcement, right? Going up against a, a, a going up against an oppressive government that I call empire, you know, in a, in a colonized land, right? Those are all historical facts, right? But making the choice to use that language, right, is, is, is a theological choice. Um, and so I think it's the way we, could, we tell the story of Jesus and the disciples and what happened to them um, has theological implications, and in and, and in a in, in a denomination that is, you know, from Martin Luther, who was you know a rabid anti-Semite and not much else in my opinion, and Scandinavian and Norwegian culture so built into it, and 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 we only sing white hymns, and really we don't want you to join our church, we want you to assimilate to the way we worship, mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of things. You know, they say something, right? And they also change the way that people receive Jesus Christ. Um, the way Paul told the story of Jesus was incredibly different than James, right? And so Paul, 
you know, Paul used his position in empire of privilege to mess with the status quo much more than we ever give him credit for. And, and, and James just wanted to create another Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, you know, it's, it's, but they were telling the same story. The savior came and we hung his ass from a tree for loving us. Same story. I, I do want to, I'm sorry, I, I do want to hone in on that, that image of Christ, and specifically the image you uh, evoke in the book of him being lynched and comparing his fate to that of people like Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and Philando Castile, and at first, it's kind of, it, it strikes, uh, you know, me as a white reader, it kind of struck me first as sort of, you know, there's a harshness in the in, in the violence in making that comparison, but when I sat to think about it, it's like, well, but no, that's how it is, and it's contemporary, and it's accurate, but... It seems to me like mainline churches these days, they're trying to steer away from the details of Christ's suffering and the pain he went through, and they kind of want to avoid maybe even the guilt. Like, there's this message of, of, of suffering and, and resurrection, but in, in regards to, you know, the government be upon him, they kind of like to leave that stuff out. Do you sort of agree that that's the case, and, and where does that come from for you? Well, yeah, I mean, suffering doesn't sell, right? I mean, look, we, we I, you know, as a pastor— <laughs> I, I have a really crappy job. I'm like, hey, how would you like to follow me and we're going to follow this guy and we're going to find out that everything we learned about capitalism is wrong. Everything that we're doing in this society is completely backwards. Oh, by the way, we're going to really suffer for it. No disciple had a great ending. Like there is no retirement plan for disciples. Right. And then, at the end, we get to go to Calvary, and we get to be publicly humiliated, right? And let's think about the humiliation of Jesus. He was sexually assaulted, right? He was ripped. He had his clothes taken off, right? And he was beaten in front of people. That's sexual assault, right? He was sexually assaulted. He was de- he was degraded, right? All by law enforcement in front of all the luminaries and the people of this time from lowest to high witnessed this, right? As they cheered it on, right? And he was scourged and, you know, all these things, right? And you're saying as a pastor, why don't you come along for that ride? By the way, at the end of time, you'll be resurrected and you'll feel like just a moment. I swear that's going to happen. <laughs> so the Christian endeavors are really <laughs> so. It, it, it just is. Um, and, but if you can talk about, if you, if you, you know, and, and this is all from James Cone, right? Uh, the cross and the lynching tree. Absolutely. You don't understand the you don't understand the the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ if you don't understand the history of lynching in America. And the uh, the history of lynching in America is probably the closest example we have to what it would have been like to witness the death of Jesus Christ. Why the crowds went along with it. Um, why law enforcement didn't either didn't stop it and or participated in it, and why the 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 authorities of the time went along. Right, it's the closest approximation we have in American culture. Combine that with the fact that white supremacy always seems to shift and morph and find new ways to to do to make the unrepentant and the reprehensible acceptable. Right, so. Now we have police being used as a racist concierge service, right? I feel uncomfortable, right? You know, there's, there's black people here, right? I'm on the line. People call knowing, knowing that the police will come 
right? And knowing the systemic conditions that that, that, that person of color will probably not react well to this, and it's, it's a high probability they'll either be hurt, arrested, or killed, right? And so what we're seeing is we're seeing uh, systemized crucifixion through the police. And it's baked into, the, it's baked into who we are. Um, and it's baked into the way we operate um, as a people in this country, right? And then there's hope in that, too. Because if we use the resurrection as a model, particularly the scenes where Jesus has fish, with his friends, right? Where where Thomas like is the only real disciple and is like, yo, let me put my finger in there, right? Right. <laughs> like we get to do that with Trayvon Martin on the day of resurrection. We get to hold Mike Brown. We get to hear Eric Gardner sing songs to his God with a full throated voice and lungs full of sweet air, right? And so there's hope in that too, right? And so it's it's a good model for people for suffering to become real to Christians, right? But you know, the, the premise of that is that you actually have to believe Christ suffered. Like if you just think like, you know, like, you know, if you're just like all Easter and no Good Friday, that's not gonna work, you know? Like you need some Good Friday in your life. I mean, there's a there's an absolute amen to everything that you just said. I know, you know, as a as a fellow pastor, I have to remind my people constantly. I'm saying, hey, Jesus's death, Jesus's lynching, that was a political thing. That was a political act uh, by people who didn't want, um, uh, you know, that was that wasn't a religious act until later. Right. And so, I, I, yeah, I think I think what you're talking about uh, is deeply political. I know I have to remind my people all the time that Christianity is deeply political. When you talk this way, it's got to make people feel uncomfortable. In your book, you talk about it. In your book, you say Christianity is deeply political. What kind of response do you get from that? And then secondly, if I'm going to follow up. Well, no, answer that first. What kind of response do you get from that? I mean, you know, I mean, that's the thing, right? We And, and part of this is that, like, the Christian church has become such, I mean, such a— so, so subservient to empire. And part of that is like, you know, the odd thing that happened, um, you know, post-World War II, right? I mean, the, the world really had this existential crisis and they were like, holy <laughs> evil's real, right? And so, and, and, and so they reacted in the way that, 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 that we've seen throughout time, you're like, well, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? They're like, oh, the church, right? And they all run to the church. Those numbers in the 50s and 60s that we hear our predecessors lament, right? And you hear it all the time at churches. Well, there was a day where this church was so full, right? That was unusual. And in fact, it was an aberration in American Christianity, right? It was an aberration. And in fact, the numbers that we have now are closer to the numbers 1910, pre-World War One, and right around the times of the Great Awakening. It's like the numbers, the, interesting. The numbers bear out that we're actually where we, you know, the church isn't dying. It's actually normalizing after the after World War Two. Now I say that because there's a couple other things that happened. All of a sudden, Jesus was no longer political. All of a sudden, you know, people no longer want to hear about fascism. People didn't want to hear about corrupt governments, you know, oppressing people. And in fact. People just wanted to be kind of, and I think pastorally needed to be, you know, told that the world was okay because it, it had been to the brink twice, right? 
So you had a generation of that, a generation of leaders who, who felt like we had been to the brink, but we had learned better, right? Then come the 80s and the 90s um, and some of the culture wars and some of the extreme stuff that we see on the right. You know, evangelicals have known that the gospel was political since, you know, since they first got together to try and, you know, you know, the, the first thing they tried to get, get around was segregation, and that didn't right? So the roots of that movement is, is inherently racist. They're like, all right, well, we can't do that anymore, so let's take the right from women to choose. So, you know, the gospel's an inherently political document. Jesus was the third or fourth Messiah who had popped up in Jerusalem in that 30, in that 30 to 40 period. Um, one of them was even named Jesus prior to him, you know, when, when when people when people don't understand why they scream for barbarous, you know, you know, he, he was he was a revolutionary, you know, he was someone who was willing to fight, right? And here comes Jesus, who takes you know Palm Sunday, walks a standing army into the temple, right, and then flips out on them. This, you know, this 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 political figure. Was it was highly convenient to kill him? I mean, and, and Caiaphas talks about it, right? I'd rather kill one person for the sake of the nation, right, than than have the whole nation die. And I think we're really hard on the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees were making decisions that oppressed people make when under pressure from their oppressor, right? They were really making you know their backs were against the wall. Um, and here was this person who was going to destroy this fragile nation, right? And what happens 30 years later? Well, you know, the, 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 the religious authorities aren't able to keep Rome away. The revolutionaries who've been wanting the violent revolution that Jesus tried to assuage rise up, right? And Jerusalem's destroyed and the second temple's destroyed, you know, less than a generation later, right? So, you know... Um, it's it's a highly political document. Um, uh, Paul's entire epistles are, in, are are highly political. The reason they're so contradictory is because he's talking to particular people in a particular time in particular social and political circumstances. You know, I, I did a post a couple of weeks ago that like really pissed people off. I said basically the epistles of Paul are like if your church council notes were saved for two thousand years. <laughs> leadership team is it's like if someone took your leadership team notes and were like or your emails that you wrote to your leadership team and suddenly they were like this is scripture right it's like you know right and so it's it's a really interesting thing that god's doing with the epistles but 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 you know jesus is a highly political figure and he was politically expedient to kill um and you know and 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 i mean and and the gospels are very ironic about it um, and I think I, I think the gospel writers understood um, much more inherently what they were saying um, and how they were describing his story. Um, but you know, the gospel's political. There's no way around it. You know, everything you said, everything you said is is probably new for a lot of people. It, it'd probably be something that would upset a lot of people. How do we reclaim that gospel and really the origins of that gospel as good news? Yeah, I mean, so. So part of it is, is that we've over-spiritualized Jesus and we've detached Jesus from, you know, his historical context, right? I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know if there's any Hamilton fans out there, but, you know, that, that first song in, Ham, in Hamilton, you know, how's this arrogant, loudmouth, you know, bastard, 
right? You know, you know, how does this person, I mean, that's who Jesus was. I mean, you know, some of the things that are in there, like what good can come from Nazareth, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. There's a reason they say that. Nazarenes were known to be rowdy and to drink a lot and to start fights and, you know, and were from the backwoods, right? You know, way out there. No one, you know, nothing of any worth had ever come from there. Um, you know, and then, you know, then it's like, who's his dad? You know, does Jesus have two dads or two moms, right? Because the Holy Spirit is a she, like, you know, like the Bible says, you know, look that up and fight me, you know, come at me, you know. You know Lenny, at, come at, Duncan, come at me, bro. Yeah, at Lenny A. Duncan on Twitter, come at me. Um, right? Or did he have two fathers? Was it Joseph and, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like, I mean, I mean, even think about this. God threw God's own self into vulnerability and chose an unwed teenage mother in a time of incredible political oppression where Herod was, you know, a despotic, imbecilic ruler, right? Um, I mean, think about that. Why, why do that? You're the creator of the universe. Why would you want to be an infant? When's the last time you held an infant? Infants can't do and, and we failed that God every time. The nation of Israel had failed that God over and over again. So that's how God decides to, to, to leap into the world and in, in, clothed in vulnerability? I mean, there is political ramifications in that throughout that entire thing. And if we don't reclaim that, what's going to happen is the same move towards Gilead that we're seeing all over the country right now. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, Absolutely. So understanding that stuff, understanding that stuff is really ironic. You know, like like, uh, you know, one of the most ironic texts that people get so frustrated about is born again. Right. You have to be born again because the same word in Greek means from above and again. Right. Don't be Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a dumbass. He's like, how do I go back into my mom's vagina? Like, right. I mean, right. But we want to argue about does that mean you have to, like, confess to Jesus? Right. Yeah, like, right. Just, born again oh, what, what 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 jesus is saying you have to be born from above you have to be connected to the higher things right like but if you don't have someone sit down and actually read that to you in greek you know what i mean and like and in coiny greek and understand that that was a joke and that the writers used a lot of joke and a lot of irony in the gospel you know the gospel is really funny if you actually read it in the in the original language it's it's meant to be it's meant to be kind of a sarcastic document you know but I mean, I mean, you hit on it too. I mean, it's uh, it's good news for that reason. But then, when you get this God who comes as the infant, right, and you get this unwed teenage mother, there's this sense in which, um, within the political oppressed, within the people who are politically oppressed, you have the Savior coming in a place of vulnerability. So immediately, like the Savior comes in in a place that that you can absolutely identify with because you're in that same place of vulnerability. I mean, I love that. That's the message. I absolutely love it. It's probably what keeps me being a Christian, to be honest. But uh, but I digress. I mean, that's it, right? I mean, that's it. That's what that's what Jesus really offers. Um, Jesus really offers to people, you know, a God who has sweated, who's been arrested, who's been betrayed by friends, who knows what it's like to be hungry. I mean, to know what it's like to have friends die from diseases that were rampant. To know what it's like to have an oppressive government shove him around and then knows what it's like for his own people to sell out to that government 
hashtag hello evangelical. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of a bit uh, that there's a, a certain uh, slice of the population that was a bit upset recently when they found out that um, the actress cast as uh, Ariel in the upcoming live-action Disney remake is going to be an African-American. And there was a tweet that said, uh, if people are so upset over Ariel, can't wait until they hear about uh, Jesus. Um, in terms yeah. of in terms of being non-Caucasian, and and just even the the image of him as being a non-Caucasian and preaching the idea of of love and and just it's so obvious to us that like of course this is radical, of course this is political. And I mean, you even say in your book, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you directly: the church is political. Feeding the homeless is radical. Marriage is radical when it's offered to everyone and blessed by clergy. God's justice is radical. Centering the oppressed is radical. Our task is not so much to reject politicism as it is to reject evil. The message of Jesus is radical and political, and that seems so wonderful and obvious, and yet there still is this population that said, no, 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 let's just make him a person that just wanted to love everyone, trying to kind of separate basically his core from what we're reading, and it just seems so backwards to me. Like, how, how can you, you cannot separate the two? That is an inherent contradiction. Yeah, and I also think that, like, it served pastors for a long time, right? My job's a lot easier if Jesus is, like, this, like, Pollyanna kind of, oh, he loves everyone. But Jesus didn't love everyone. I mean, you know, what he says to the the Syrophoenician woman is his most human moment, right? Calls her a dog. And really, in the original language, he's calling her a bitch, right? I mean, that's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, he's, you know... you know, he's like, he's like, I'm here for my people. It's like an incredibly racist, sexist moment where he's like, you know, I'm here for my people and only for my people, you know, and she replied, you know what I mean? I, why, you know, like, why should I feed that to the dogs? Right. And she's like, yo, even the dogs get the scraps from the table. Right. And Jesus changes his mind. And I think understanding like you know uh and if you're part of the lectionary cycle this week is the samaritan you know the good samaritan right and like you can't be the good samaritan if you've never been an outsider Mm. literally impossible the samaritans were the 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 epitome of outsiders in that time in first century uh palestine and, and 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 among the jewish people so you know like I mean, that's the thing, is that these are all radical acts that Jesus did. Every one of those acts was radical, you know, um, and that's why they that's why they hung his ass from a tree, you know. And also, I think we have to understand to understand the position of the Pharisees. You have to understand. I mean, this podcast is called a midrash. That whole thing was a midrash. It was one. It was one Pharisee basically talking to another. It was a group of rabbis having a discussion. And the fact that the Pharisees even asked Jesus a question was a sign of respect, right? But Jesus kept pushing them to the point where he knew that eventually something was going to happen, you know? Um, and he kept push, he kept moving the bar forward. And I, and I, think, I, I think, you know, that is the core of Jesus' message is that every time we draw a line, Jesus steps over and invites us to the other side. And, um, you know, and, and, and we see this over and over again in the gospel. Um, and, and I think and, and, and I think we see Jesus even get, you know, with this, you know, the Syrophoenician woman and a few other texts, we see Jesus even get stretched beyond what he thought the limits were. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, people want to separate it from the political, which 
God chose to be a human person. God chose God chose a particular point in history with a political polit- particular political situation, a particular social situation, a particular you know economic situation. And that's how God chose. That's the point in time God's like, I'm going to reveal who I am. Here's the deal, right? And 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 He chose to be in a colonized land that was under severe political oppression where people died of starvation on a regular basis, where children were treated basically like they didn't even have names till they were old enough to actually make it, where widows were left destitute and poor, where you know tax collectors and other people were betraying their own people, um, you know, where you could be put to death for not worshiping the emperor like a god, right? Hashtag, you know, Trump evangelicals. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, like God chose that, you know, I, I don't think it's by mistake. It's like to say that Jesus wasn't political and none of that stuff matters is like saying that the creator of the universe haphazardly makes decisions, right? But, but we can look at the cellular structure of anything and know that's not true. So all of it's part of a design. You, you, you mentioned the, the, the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I, I think about that. I think of when Jesus told uh, a rich man that it's easier for a camel to get through the head of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. And I think of the Beatitudes, and I think of these stories that he told people which kind of rubbed people the wrong way, rankled them, kind of made them probably uncomfortable. And uncomfortable is a a word you use a lot in your writing. And I'm just wondering if you believe that comfort is sort of the antithesis to or anathema to to growth, be it personal growth or as a church. It just if you feel being uncomfortable is something that's necessary for the church to move forward. Yeah, I, I think that the I, I think if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. And I think we're all called to grow, right? I think, you know, as a Lutheran, the very Lutheran thing is to say that two thousand years ago something happened on the cross, all sin was shattered, and the, everything's bought and paid for, and you know, and, and the big thing in the Lutheran church is what do I have to do for salvation? And the answer any good Lutheran will give you is nothing. But I also think we have a response to that, and we have a response to what was done. And when I realize that I'm free, I'm free to care for my neighbor. Caring for the neighbor takes a lot of sacrifice. So I don't have to do anything to earn my salvation, but to love my neighbor, there's a lot. I have to get to know them. I have to try and reach out to their social location. I have to learn more about them. And in learning more about them, I learn a lot of the ugly side about me. And, um, you know, and, and, and so, like, I think if you're not getting uncomfortable, you're not practicing Christianity. Like, you're just not. I also think if you're rich, if you're, like, basically, if you're a billionaire, you're scum. And <laughs> millionaires are questionable, right? <laughs> like, there's no way around it. Jesus specifically said this about money and capitalism and wealth over and over again, right? Over and over again. But we would be like, yeah, but they tithe 10%. Like, no. That dude's on the that and always a dude. That dude is on the road to perdition. Like, do not stay away from him. You know, like, like, you know. I mean, Jesus says things like, "It would be better for you then, right?" Like, it, you know, like, you know, it, it, you know. He says things like, "It would be better if, if you had a a stone tied around your neck and we threw your ass in the river than to live like that, right?" But we don't get it, right? We don't get it. Um, and so I think there's a lot of stuff like that that's, that's really uncomfortable for people to hear, particularly people who are doing well and think they do well and give to all the right charities and have a nice size home and really spend their time for communities. If you tell them, 
None of that matters. You need to give up everything and follow me, right? Nobody wants to hear that. That's like the worst. Like, you know, you would, you would not stay at that church. You'd be like, yo, I'm out. You know what I mean? Like, I'm out. Like, what do you want me to do? No, negative, right? So I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm absolutely with you. And at the same time, as a pastor, I'm, I'm not with you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like you know, I, I think we both feel that way a little bit. Like, if somebody came to me and was like, hey, you need to give it all up. You, you need to go somewhere. I'd think about it, and then I'd be like, nah. But at the same time, it's good news, right? It's good news. So how do we move our people along, right? How do we move people in the church who still believe the church matters? I've been saying to our church, I said, hey, we're at a point where we can usher in a new kind of Christianity for the next 500 years. Yes. How do we, how do we make people uncomfortable enough to, to, to think about capitalism, to think about what it means to, to give up possessions and follow Jesus, to think about what it means to truly love your neighbor? How do we how do we move our people towards that in that trajectory? Yeah, I think part of it is just being really authentic. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that that, you know, I'm a f up, you're a f up, right? Like, 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 like Keep yourself. I'm yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> like being really authentic, showing up as who we are. I think that's the first thing, winning people's trust. And I don't mean like, you know, people, you know, like the way like emergent church talks about people respond to authenticity that's why we're doing a dinner church like no that's all cool that's great stuff but but what i mean is is like we show up as we are right and that that we realize that this journey shoulder to shoulder um that i wasn't raised up for ministry i was set aside and there's a difference um and then I think the next thing is, is that we really, I mean, you know, as a progressive, I hate saying this, but we, we really use Paul as a model. I mean, Paul really used his power and privilege to really mess with the social structures of, you know, the, of, of Roman society. I mean, if you don't understand Roman society and the patron client system and what it meant that Paul was a citizen and how he was really blurring the lines between all those you don't understand Paul. You you think you understand Paul, but you have no idea who Paul is, really. Um, and so Paul really did a lot of this, you know, in Philemon, you know, he really blurs the line, right? Like he, he's writing to the person who owns one uh, Simus, right? He's, he's writing, but then he says, this is my, this is, this is my sibling in this work. This is my sibling in this work, right? So Paul's the patron of Philemon, and he puts his slave up on the same level, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then writes about how, like, but we'll send him back if you want. Who who would accept that? Who would, you know, like, like who would say, oh, yeah, we'll send him back and, you know, it's all good. But Paul had power and privilege, and he used it up until his death till they beheaded him, right? Even the court cases, he knew as a Roman citizen he would be able to proclaim the gospel and be treated with a, a, an enormous amount of privilege and freedom on his way all the way up until Rome when they cut his head off, right? And he does a lot of that stuff. He really takes the patron-client system and leverages it. And we can do the same thing. We can use, particularly people who have any kind of privilege or power or wealth, we can use that in a way that leverages this American system against itself, right? And start to proclaim good news, right? Um, and, and, and just encouraging people to that endeavor. I think, you know, I 100% agree. This is the most exciting time to be a Christian in 500 years. 
and and we have the ability to usher in a new Christianity and to rewrite the story, and 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 what an incredible endeavor, right? That you you know you think about that you were chosen for this time, this place, this context in this country to be part of that endeavor at the beginning of the cosmos. At the beginning of the cosmos, God was like, I had to put together a crack team of people in 2019 who are going to usher in, you know what I mean, a revival from my church, right? Who am I going to send, right? And he sent your listeners, and he sent y'all, and he sent me. That That's insane. Like, that's insane. That's good news. That's it, good it, news. It, it's good. I mean, scary news, but it's good yeah. news. Well, yeah. Then, then you get into the like, wow, I really didn't sign up for this thing. But yeah, <laughs> I think all calls to ministry are like that. They're like, you know, you leave your nails on the wall as you're being drugged along, you know? <laughs> more, more often than not, and more than one time. Lenny, I, I want to ask you about, because there's probably the most eye-opening, I don't want to say eye-opening maybe, but, but you have a chapter in your book entitled, Dylan Roof and I are Lutheran. Um, and in that chapter, you talk about many things, but one of the things you talk about is how um, Trayvon Martin's death um, didn't kind of create a, a, a connection and sort of empathy with some of your, your white friends, as you thought, but instead seemed you seemed to make you more aware of a difference um, and, and how there's sort of a, a fundamental misunderstanding of certain things. And, and these days, divisions between people can feel more, more like chasms. And, and i got to be honest with you that at my most cynical, I sometimes think, Systemic change is impossible. We just got to focus on what we can do intimately, individually, or in a local community. We're never going to make wholesale changes because just things are too different. And now, as someone who has seen and witnessed firsthand racial violence, segregation, you know, the oppression upon you, do you agree with that? Because it, it seems like you're actually quite hopeful and you, ha you have a message of like, no, Christ is changed, not just individually, but outwardly and for all of creation as well. Yeah, I mean, so, I, you know, I wrote that chapter, Dylan Roof is a Lutheran and so am I. And for your listeners who don't know who Dylan Roof is, Dylan Roof is the young man who was an ELCA Lutheran who walked into a Bible study in Charleston and Mother Emanuel Church and massacred nine people there after sitting there for an hour in the Bible study. I mean, think about that, right? How many times do people wander into your church and just sit down and don't say much, you know? And then this young man stood up and did this. Um... You know, and I've written a lot about Dylan, and I've talked a lot about Dylan, and what I really wanted to do in this chapter was not humanize Dylan, but track our history. So, you know, if you if you put us on paper, me and Dylan are very similar. You know, Dylan was somewhat homeless. I was very homeless. Dylan had a problem with drugs and alcohol. I had a problem with drugs and alcohol. Um, Dylan came from a really broken home where there's, you know, evidence of abuse. I came from, the, you know, uh, an abusive household. You know, and if you track our histories, you know, if, if I was a counselor or someone like that, I'd be like, wow, these are really similar kind of trauma going on in different things. But then the death of Trayvon Martin happens, and that's where our story split. I Google Black Lives Matter because I see the hashtag on Facebook, and he Googles white genocide that day, right? And so... I, and you know, and actually I actually had someone bring this up. They're like, wow, you, you use the phrasing Dylan and I, Dylan and I, Dylan and I throughout that entire chapter. Um, I don't want people to think that Dylan Roof is some monster, right? Dylan Roof is probably sitting in your youth group. 
right now. He's someone who's not being challenged about the, the nature of white supremacy. He's not being challenged about uh, some of the darker places of the internet that he's exploring. He's not being challenged by the fact that the gospel has an entirely different message. And he's sitting there. And you don't want to say anything because his parents are good givers. Or because you don't have a real connection to them. Or whatever excuse we make up as pastors, right? And, 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 and I make them too sometimes. But Dylan is there. The next Dylan Roof is probably sitting in our pews or inside our, 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 our chairs, you know? He's coming to a small group. He, he's hungry for the gospel, and he's not receiving a radical gospel that's full of the, the feast of equity that is the kingdom of God. And so, like, it would be easy for me to write a chapter about what a monster he is, how he's so different. But if I other Dylan, then I take away the opportunity for us to start to dismantle that stuff around the next one. Um, and I am really hopeful for systemic change, to be honest with you. I, I, I really believe that we can redeem the soul of America. Um, and, and I have no historical reason to buy into that. It's one of those crazy Jesus things. You know, my entire life has been characterized by America giving me the short end of the stick intentionally and systemically. And I still believe that it's a it's it's a project that's worth dying for. Why? Because Jesus is a terrorist and Jesus told me that's what I have to do. I mean, like, that's the only explanation I can have. I just feel a call to have these discussions um, and that people are listening to me right now and that I need to use that platform. Right. Um, and I also believe that we don't you know what makes. What makes, you can't even say it's phrasing anymore, but what makes America great, all the great things that have ever happened in the United States have started by people locally, right? It's all prophetic ministry, I think, starts with, it, I'll do it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I think I, I, I think that America, you know, not the government, not the founding fathers who were all racist capitalists who deserve little to no respect whatsoever, um, not the framers, not any of that stuff. But like when we talk about the America of the hungry, the poor, and the starving masses, people have always risen up and created the best things about this country, right? And they've often been people of faith. And so that I believe in. I've seen this country, I've traveled around it, I've seen the worst it has to offer, and I've seen the best it has to offer. And I believe in that. You know, um, more than I believe in like the circular firing squad that's the Democratic Party or the rising nationalist leaders that are taking over the Republican Party or this highly abnormal buffoon who sits, you know, and in the White House right now. Um, based on the, the things you just said and, and based on this chapter, Dylan Roof and I are Lutheran and even just sitting here talking to me, I am a, a straight white cis male who has benefited off of the, the system that has sort of oppressed people like you like throughout history. So reading this book, speaking to someone like me, speaking to this white denomination, like what can, what can someone like me individually do? And, I, and I, it's, you know, it's more than just pray. It's more than just protest. What can someone like me do to try and bring about this equity and this change that you are speaking about right now? 
Yeah, I, I, I would say the first thing is if you're if if you're what we call a lay person, you know, like support your pastor. When your pastor goes out on a limb and your pastor starts preaching about Black Lives Matter and they want to get involved in the poor people's campaign and like you you know, support them, like a hundred percent show up for them. If you're a pastor, I would say be willing to be surprised by your people. You know, so often I hear like, well, my people won't go for that. My people won't. You'll never know unless you try, Mm -hmm. you know, like um, and I'm I'm constantly surprised by by the the amount of of hope. Right. That was like Obama's thing. Right. Mm -hmm. No. Yes. You know, like I'm surprised by the hope that people have in them. You know, the other thing is like educate yourself, get anti-racism training, stick with it, do it a few times, center the voices of color, center writers of color, listen to black women right now. Listen to black women. You know, you can't stress that enough. Listen to black women right now. Listen to black trans women right mm. now. Like you can't, you know, um, you know, and 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 really create space for your queer siblings to actually be a part of the church, an active part of the church where they're affirmed, right? I'm way past radical welcome, and I'm on to radical affirmation. Mm. You know, if you're, if you're still into radical welcome, from my perspective, we started doing that in 71 in the Lutheran church, <laughs> right? Like, you're, like, way behind it. I'm, I'm into radical affirmation. Like, how am I making sure that I'm lifting up and feeding into queer leaders so they can take the church into the 22nd century. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I, you know, how do I do that? Right. And, 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 you know, and use your power and privilege in that way. You know, if you're a straight cis white male and there's a leadership position coming up at your church, sit down <laughs> and suggest someone else. Right. And, and leverage your power and privilege, you know, in those ways. Right. Um, and continue to like, just decenter yourself and decentering yourself is very scary um, it's also uh, it has to be a constant conscious effort to decenter yourself, and so decenter yourself in these situations, you know, um, and and continue to do that work. Don't give up on that work, um, and realize that if you start to feel hopeless in the midst of it as a white cis male, think about what it feels like for me as a black queer, right? Like 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 you know, if you think you're hopeless, man, do I got a story for you, right? And, and, <laughs> But to know that to know that you are on the side of the kingdom of God, to know that you're part of the unveiling, the great revelation, to know that Jesus stands with you in that work, to know that all the saints rejoice every time you join that, right? Like really, really get into it and, and realize that what you're doing is is biblical, is scriptural, and is God-breathed, right? It's not just you, you know— doing something social or political or progressive. That's why I don't like that phrase. Mm-hmm. That what we're actually doing is we're doing something that's scriptural and God-breathed. Mm-hmm. And now when it comes to this this radical affirmation that you're talking about, in in the chapter of your book, The Church is Queer, you mentioned the 2009 decision. Can you talk about what that was and what effect it had on, on LGBTQIA representation in the ELCA? Yeah, so in, in uh, the 2009 Churchwide Assembly, which is our national gathering, um, very similar to the one that uh, the Methodists just had, right? Yeah. Um, we get together, and, 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 and people have been fighting for queer clergy and queer folks to be welcomed and then affirmed and then ordained for since about the 70s mm-hmm. in, the, 
ALC openly. It had been going on for a long time, but people were being open about that battle. In 2009, we made a, a, a very Lutheran decision, right? It was very yes and. That's mm -hmm. like a big thing, right? And so we decided that we had five positions on human sexuality. One position being queer people are perfectly created, you know, by, you know, by the creator as they are. Their gifts are needed for ministry and they're wonderful and like they can be clergy and they can be leaders and, and we're so happy they're here. All the way, you know, with different shades of that, all the way going to what we call bound conscience where people can say, bound by the conscience of my own scriptural understanding, I do not uplift this. I, I think that, 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 that queer folks are, are, are sinful and that we're you know, lifting up something sinful. But by doing it in those ways and by accepting all five of those positions, we were able to keep the entire church together, right? And we had people who left, but we were able to keep the majority of the church together. The reason I talk about in the book is because people talk about the 2009 decision like that, right? Mm. We're talking about the radical affirmation of people who've been in the church for 2,000 years. We're talking about my siblings in Christ. Mm -hmm. We're talking about some of the most incredible leaders I know, some of the most incredible preachers I know, some of the most incredible disciples I know. But we talk about it in the Lutheran church in these hushed tones, like the 2009 decision. <laughs> you know, and, and it's not a decision, it's people. And it's become a dog whistle, right? And so we've had bishops say things like 2009 was our 9-11. Oh, God. Right? And so you're talking about real people here. Um, and so we're, you know, um, we're in a place where only 10% of our churches have publicly declared that they um, are welcoming the queer folks. Um, and we have a small amount of queer leaders, and we and for a long time this group called uh, ELM Extraordinary Lutheran Ministries uh, was just ordaining people without the bishop's permission who were queer. <laughs> <laughs> they had like this renegade like roster of leaders. <laughs> God bless them for doing that work, and um, I love them so much. I'm a member of the Proclaim community, and I sit on the board of Reconciling Works, which is how our churches declare that they're okay for for queer folks, or at least they're doing the work. Um, but you know, the problem with all that stuff is, man, is that, you know, like, there are people, I sit in a church with people who are, you know, rabidly, you know, when I say church, I mean, you know, the, the entire denomination, who are rabidly, you know, homophobic and queerphobic and transphobic, you mm -hmm. know, and racist. Um, and so, our way forward, um, you know, which is very similar to what they called the one church plan during the Methodist thing a few, you know, a while back. Mm -hmm. Our way forward looks really progressive from the outside, but has some problems, you know, internally. And I try to adjust, address that in the book that, you know, like the church has been queer for 2,000 years. Queer people have been here the entire time. For us to pretend they don't exist is just insane, you know? Like you're going to tell me all those monks weren't like ace get out of here, you know, <laughs> get out of here, you know, like, come on, you know? So j just to kind of, to wrap this up, I guess, you, you talk obviously a lot about racism in your book, you talk a lot about oppression, 
but you also talk a whole lot about grace in the book. And I love you have a line, um, you, you kind of define grace, or, or at least the idea behind it is, I am f without God. And, and you've hit at this already, you've hit at this talking about the 2009 decision, you've hit on this kind of talking about what draws you to this everything, but what, um, to the outside audience listening to this, what hope do you have as an individual as to what you've seen in the ELCA, in the church at large, and what hope do you declare out there to everyone listening, basically? Yeah, no, I think that the understanding of, of, of our relationship with God, right, that a God, there's a God out there that loves us so much that it took, you know, like I talked about earlier, the form of an infant lived among us, right, died because of sin, right, and then came back with good news and shattered the bonds of death, right? Like, wow, right? And in the church, despite all the problems the church has had over 2,000 years and purges and programs against, you know, uh, our, our Jewish siblings and, 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 you know, inquisitions and, you know, all these things, that story still remains. That story was not shattered. It was not sent into, you know, the, 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 the dustbin of history. And that the fact that we're having conversations like this right now means the Holy Spirit, she is on the move. She is on the move. And this is an incredibly hopeful time. You know, it's not a coincidence that I'm talking about this with you and that whoever's listening to this is listening to this. None of that stuff is coincidence. You know, and all coincidences, like, you know, like the old timers say in recovery, it's God's way of remaining anonymous, right? I mean, you know, all of this stuff is coming together at an incredibly crucial point in human history. When the rise of fascism seems like it's back, when Europe's already gone far right, when the United States seems like, you know, it's being run more by Herod than, than, than any particular uh, political party when immigrants are being housed in concentration camps, when black bodies are being slain in the street, when our queer siblings and particularly black trans women are being lynched in the streets, right? But, you know, while all this is happening, while evil is on the march, holy conversations and actions are happening like this, right? And so, you know, where are the proofs that God is real? We're the proof that love is real, and we're the proof that grace is real. And um, I think that's a pretty damn good thing.